Welcome to Herbal Hour, the podcast for those inspired by nature. I'm your host, Dr. Bogdan, and I'm a licensed naturopath and traditional herbalist practicing in the lovely state of Oregon, bringing you organic discussions with experts in natural medicine, alternative therapies, and holistic mental health. Hippocrates taught us that the doctor treats, but it is nature that heals. So take a deep breath and get comfortable. We hope you enjoy our conversations over a cup of the finest herbal tea, because in nature, it's always herbal hour. Welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast. We have a special guest today. Uh, She is an herbalist, naturopathic doctor, and a big inspiration. Her name is uh, Jillian Stansbury. She's written many works on herbalism, materia medicas, uh, taught and uh, also seen patients and been a great doctor. And today we're going to be talking about herbalism. In specific, I had questions around mental health, uh, use of herbs, and many more things. So for our audience, can you give a brief introduction of you know who you are, how you got into naturopathic medicine, herbalism, that kind of thing? Sure. My name is Dr. Jillian Stansbury, and for almost 35 years now, I have run Battleground Healing Arts in the small town of Battleground, Washington, which is just a half an hour north of Portland, Oregon, where there is a naturopathic medical school. And I was the chair of that program, the botanical medicine program there for many decades, and I remain on the faculty. Um, I have also uh, taught at a number of conferences from allopathic medical conferences to dental conferences to nurse practitioner conferences. But these days I'm reining it into mostly the herbal conferences because that's where my real heart and soul lies. And so to answer your question, Bogadan, Dr. Bogadan, how I got into herbalism, I think it was just from my love of nature as a child. Um, I love just to practice um, learning the names of plants as a nerdy kid, checking out books from the library in grade school and being able to name the plants. I liked to take the long way home from school and Mm. pass under this little culvert under the highway or wasn't really a highway under the street so I could get to this forested area and take a circuitous route home through the forest Uh, rather than the neighborhood streets where most of the other kids were walking. So it was really a love affair of plants and just something innate within me sort of captured my interest from a young age. And since that time, I uh, was fortunate to belong to a Girl Scout troop. All different kinds of Girl Scouts groups, I think, are different from out the United States. But I was lucky to have some that were real backpacking enthusiasts. Mm. And we fixed up an old school bus and once a month went backpacking at different places around the Midwest. And I was also lucky that those wonderful Girl Scout leaders had a love of plants themselves. And so as we were doing our backpacking trips, we would often do some plant ID. And they would know the the names of just the pretty flowers, basically. And Mm -hmm. they taught me a lot of um, just the native plants. And that just furthered and deepened my interest. So by the time I got to high school and loved biology and chemistry, and by the time I got to college, I did all the pre-med classes, including botany, which isn't technically pre-med, but it certainly helps for the naturopathic and herbal field, took the botany classes 
And I've always also been interested in ethnobotany, the cultural uses of different plants of peoples from around the world. And that isn't only herbal medicine or medicinal uses of plants, though that's my real interest, but I'm interested in dye plants and lumber plants and cordage plants and plants for fishing and plants to improve nitrogen fixation in the soil. Mm. And so I've studied in Southeast Asia, um, around Vietnam and Laos and Thailand and <clears throat> Burma, et cetera. And then for 15 years, I studied in the Amazon and Andes, and that led me to having a, a humble home down there in Cusco, Peru. And I still use that as a base camp. And at this point in time, have developed some wonderful friendships with um, several tribes of the Amazon, four different tribes that I've visited again and again and again over 15 years and have watched the babies grow up into young adulthood and so on, or the teens grow up to now have families of their own. And I've learned a lot of South American plants and um, I don't use all of those plants in my own clinical practice. They're not all available here, but it just... Um, keeps my passion and my interest going, learn new plants, like a whole new playground. So as I'm in my 60s now, and I'm preparing to hand over the reins of my clinical practice to the younger generation of physicians, I'm only seeing patients one day a week, but I am keeping my skill set, my hand Mm -hmm. in the ring, so to speak, and mainly focusing on running our apothecary. Um, It's just tons of fun. It's very low stress. We make medicines. We make teas. We help find difficult to find products. I fill the prescriptions of other area doctors, functional medicine doctors, or those dentists or nurse practitioners or physician's assistants who know about Arnica or know about Comfrey Sav or something like that and call me with questions or have me make something specific. And of course, our own naturopathic physicians in our community. So it's been a long love affair with plants that started in childhood and seems like it will certainly endure for the end of my days, the rest of my days. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that, first of all, that's an amazing introduction. Uh, I learned a lot of new things there. So, <clears throat> so your, your passion around herbalism, it, uh, it's kind of a lifelong uh, passion. It's it's an interest in maybe even something beyond herbalism, uh, like a connection with with nature, the traditions of uh, of the past, and and passing those on. Um, I, I really love the work you're doing with uh, the apothecary. And uh, by the way, it's in Battleground, Washington. I highly recommend anyone around that area to check it out. It's really cool. It's like in the old style where it's like attached to the clinic and it's just, it's just wonderful. Um, so many of our listeners are going to be uh, healthcare practitioners, or they're interested in natural healing or herbalism, things like that. What, uh, what's your general guidance for somebody, let's say they are kind of interested in herbalism, but they're not really sure where to start? How do you learn? What school do you go to? All these kind of questions that uh, limit people. Yeah, there's there's so many options and some of it might be um, predicated on time constraints, on family constraints, on financial constraints. Certainly going to naturopathic medical school is 
a lot of time and it's not cheap. Um, so there's some people that are looking to do something on the weekend. Some people are just looking for their own benefit to treat themselves and their families and looking for something free or, or low cost. And there's so many ways to learn that are free. If that applies to you, there's YouTube videos. There's something like what you're doing um, that helps just get some information out there for those who are curious or those who just want to dabble and see if this is something that they want to take a deeper dive with. So there's lots of those sorts of um, just um, dabbling, uh, soaking up your curiosity sorts of options. There's many different herb conferences that have been up and running for decades. And the herb community, in my opinion, is just the, the most wonderful community of nature lovers and tree huggers and healers. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy attending the conferences, certainly attending um, people's lectures, but also just hanging out together around the dinner table or in the evening chatting. It's a wonderful experience. So if you think you might like to go deeper into herbal medicine, you could attend one of those conferences. One that occurs annually is in the Phoenix area, specifically Tempe, at the Naturopathic University in Southwest, the Southwest University of Naturopathic Medicine. That's usually held every April-ish. Um, and that's a wonderful time in the Southwest before it gets too hot. And often they've had their rains that make all the beautiful desert plants be mm -hmm. blooming for our visits. And there's desert hikes and learning the, the Southwest plants as part of it as well. Another conference that's been held annually year after year is Medicines of the Earth. And that's held mm -hmm. outside of the Ashland, North Carolina, Asheville, excuse me, Asheville, North Carolina area at Black Mountain. Uh, a wonderful, um, the oldest YMCA camp in the United mm -hmm. States in the old colonial style of the big grand manor um, lodges with the big um, porches with rocking chairs out front and hundreds of acres of forest to explore. And they have held this conference at that site for 20 years or so. And I've, I've gone annually for many, many years. And it's always a soul nurturing retreat to to attend there. So those are two conferences that happen in the same location year after year that I could highly recommend. Then there's the American Herbalist Guild um, who chooses a different location for their conference that's typically held in October, different places all throughout the United States. So everybody gets a turn to have it in their own backyard sooner or later that cuts down with travel expenses. Plus you get to see a lot of different places around the country if you like to go regularly. And the American Herbalist Guild also has a journal if you're interested. It's a quarterly journal, four issues per year. They're also very strong in trying to give um, different people a voice, um, underserved populations and different types of communities and bring to the table all different styles of learning and all different styles of herbalism. It's really something that they are strong in. And then more in the professional line, there's um, restorative medicine, the American Association of Restorative Medicine, ARM. They're kind of a fusion between naturopathic and allopathic medicine, mm. something that's sometimes termed functional medicine, if you're not familiar with it. They feature a lot of functional medicine MDs 
and they feature cardiovascular topics, endocrine topics, men mental health topics um, is a focus for this year. And it's a wonderful blend of allopathic, naturopathic, so really kind of molecular chemistry, um, research dense sorts of conferences, but a lot of herbal medicine, if you're interested in the molecular research, the clinical trials, the evidence-based kind of research that's going on in the realms of herbal medicine, they put on a wonderful conference. So those are conference styles of learning. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there are in various different locations in the world, some wonderful herbalists that have had their own schools. And so that's a path for some herbalists. They just go to all these conferences and read all the books and go to different um, courses. And then they themselves start a small school. It doesn't really credential you to practice with any legal entity. Like if you're looking to hang a shingle, as they say, in mm -hmm. a certain state and pass a exam. Um, it's not that type of educational program, but if you're looking just to know plants for yourself, for your family, or maybe for your own community, and you start your own school down the road, or you make your own little line of herbal products or elixirs or salves or medicinal foods, people do different sorts of career paths or just a hobby career with some of that education. Um, Jim McDonald has a school in uh, Michigan and Seven Song has a school in Ithaca, New York, for example, wonderful herbalist David Winston um, in the New Jersey area has done online programs as well as some in-person teaching. So there's a number of different fantastic herbalists. Um, there's the California School of Herbal Studies that's been up and running, I think, for 30 or 40 years in the Bay Area of California, originally um, part of Rosemary Gladstar's lineage. So lots of options there. Yeah, there's there seems like there's, you know, a path of entry into herbalism for for everybody, pretty much at, mm -hmm. at different levels. Mm -hmm. And I think that that helps to know um, because there uh, can be a lot of pressure and weight when somebody's passionate about herbalism. Oh, I want to somehow incorporate herbalism into my work, but where do I start? Uh, you can start anywhere. I think that's, that's, um, and yeah, I really love the uh, conferences uh, type style mm -hmm. uh, because it's, you know, it's very dense. It's at a professional level. It's like professionals mm -hmm. to professionals. So that's great. Um, and, you know, there's a million books written about it. Really just start anywhere is, is, is the best way. And thank you for all of those, uh, uh, many of those places I had not heard of. So that's, that's also very useful for me. So I want to shift gears a little bit okay. and uh, talk about herbalism specifically. Um, so much of my work is in mental health. Uh, dealing with a lot of anxiety, depression, people trying to find a natural alternatives to, you know, the conventional care, which uh, it turns out is not great for most people when it comes to mental health. What is your approach using herbalism, let's say, for, uh, for healing the mind, for those kind of things, or for symptom uh, presentations or, or patients where the mental health aspect is a big part of their picture? How, how do you navigate that? Yeah, and, and that is... Um such a contributing factor for so many people. I mean, all of us have had a stressful day or a, a poor sleep night when mm -hmm. we're 
upset or thinking about something or can't shut the mind off. It affects all of us. And mm. it is surprising how little tutelage we get in self-care and regulating our emotions and um, helping diffuse anger or helping build self-esteem in our children. I mean, it's, it's so lacking um, in the general culture's radar that it's really at a crisis level. And it's a serious crisis if we look at school shootings and community violence and just how, how treacherous um, marginalized people and depressed people and anxious people um, contribute to the safety and the mental health of the whole culture. And I like that it takes a village kind of approach. If we don't- right help support the most marginalized, depressed, anxious among us. It's not like it's not going to affect us. It definitely will affect us. And so I almost look at it like a crisis responsibility. If you can help somebody with a mental health issue, do it by all means. And it's crucially needed. And so in my work with patients one-on-one, -on -one, if I'm treating their blood pressure, if I'm treating their diabetes, if um, it always comes up, some struggle they're having with their spouse, with their coworkers, with their job, with their grandchildren, um, with their sister, you know, with their neighbor over a property line or who mows the lawn better. I mean, all kinds <laughs> of little things upset us and and some of them for good reason and some we have to be able to cultivate skill sets and and that's hard to do in the context of like treating somebody's high blood pressure or diabetes but it comes up all the time so when you say what is my approach like I notice those things and those are obstacles and I think that that's something that in other medical circles, if we're just handing out the Prozac, it's, it kind of is a practice, a culture of practicing not to notice. You're upset, well, here, take this drug, mm -hmm. and hopefully that will put a smiley face on you. And mm -hmm. then you check on them a month later, you all better now? Like that's as deep as the work goes. And so when I see those things. And we see those things every day. I try to make little chart notes because I will forget in a couple of months that really this person is partly upset over their granddaughter's whatever, or this person is partly upset over their workload and they're over um, overwhelmed. And those are, aren't things we can solve for people, but we can cheerlead and we can sympathize and we can help them cultivate the self-soothing mechanisms. If all we knew, if all we know how to do to soothe our anxiety is um, drink wine after work, or all you know to diffuse your anger is to shout at someone, notice that for our patients and, and say, well, let's practice what we could say in a non-confrontational way. Have you ever heard of nonviolent communication, which I highly recommend? It's a, a way of speaking to people that diffuses anger and helps mm -hmm. meet their needs and your needs alike. And I try to do that myself when I run into conflicts and I try to um, help coach people how to use non-confrontational, nonviolent language. Um, as just non-medical things. So before we even get into herbalism, yeah. that underlies how to help um, help people's mental health. And I think we should be taught those things from the time we're two years old. And, and maybe the, you know, say, use your words kind of cultivation mm -hmm. is going in the right direction. Can we 
check in with ourselves and see what we're feeling and can we express to something someone well i feel left out when you or i feel upset because i observe like those are skill sets to cultivate so i make little notes about that sort of thing in my chart and i return to that again and again well how did that discussion go or how um, have you been doing with um, stating your boundaries or how have you been doing to relax in ways that don't involve of alcohol or how have you been doing to not take on too much or how, how have you been doing to honor your body's fatigue and so on. So all that being said, that's an extremely important part of our mental health, but I find herbs to be fabulous at soothing the rough edges, at cultivating a calm, and even sometimes just the act of drinking herbal tea, almost no matter what you put in the cup, giving a medicine to a person that involves um, this ritual of going, stopping what you're doing and going, making a cup of tea, take the cup of tea to your front porch, or if it's a cold rainy day to your window and you watch the bird feeder, or you light a candle and write in your journal while you sip a cup of tea. And that is a moment of self-reflection and a moment of self-care. And then the, when you put herbs in it that are medicinal. Yeah, course, you get the physiological benefit too on yeah, top of that, that kind too. of ritual healing aspect, mm -hmm. which is and definitely it, part of it, right? Uh, you were talking about uh, learning uh, ethnobotany and uh, those kind of traditions. They they focus around the healing uses of 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 ritual, where there's the, you know, there's the intentionality behind it uh, too. Uh, when you take the formula, you think this is for my health. I'm healing myself. Not only am I taking this time uh, a part of the calm, but you're taking it apart, as you said, for self, for self-care, for your healing. It's arguable that just taking five minutes every day and thinking positively and thinking about intentions for getting better or dealing with an issue. I mean, that would work for sure. That's basically like psychotherapy in, in some sense, a lot of it works around those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, very, yeah, very true. And the integrative approach to, to, to mental health. I wanted to add that as well. Absolutely. And one other thing I want to mention, because it's so much in the, in the literature that I think is a false rumor or an urban myth that you can't mm use herbal medicine if you're on pharmaceutical SSRIs or pharmaceutical psychotropic agents. You have to know what you're doing, um, but you can certainly er use herbs in tandem with a number of pharmaceuticals from Prozac to antipsychotics. And I don't think that it's true. And I think some of the resources or authoritative statements that that make such a claim or insinuate such a claim are doing it based on molecular suspicions, mm -hmm. um, not based on actual adverse events and dozens and dozens of people or that it shows up all the time in clinical trials. It does not. Um, and I think part of that myth um, became initiated because you can't start doing drug cocktails with actual pharmaceutical agents, like put people on two SSRIs, that ser selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the most famous one being Prozac. You can't put them on Prozac and another one because your serotonin can kind of build up and develop serotonin syndrome. So when it was noted that some herbs actually also are gentle, mild serotonin reuptake inhibitors, 
it caused some researchers to say, oops, you better not take that if you're on Prozac. And while I appreciate the sentiment, I have to admit that I've done it a hundred times, combined the different herbs and given them to people on SSRIs for the precise purpose of weaning them off mm-hmm. of the SSRI. And another comment kind of going back to an earlier um Note is that sometimes in the pharmaceutical world, people are just put on these drugs to medicate them, and that's as deep as it goes. And so SSRIs were initially released to be a complement to working with a psychotherapist or a counselor or some sort of cognitive behavioral therapy. If you're just so incapacitated, you can't sleep, you don't groom yourself, you're not bathing, you're not eating, you can't take care of your kids. Well, yeah, maybe try a pharmaceutical. And if you are able to get it together enough to go to work and sleep and eat, et cetera, then you're strong enough to work with the counselor. And hopefully over time, your mental health will be improved from a number of different um, avenues, better sleep, better nutrition, better um, ability to understand yourself working with a psychotherapist, and you can get off those pharmaceuticals. But what we often find is people just go back to their physician the next year and get their next year's Mm -hmm. approved and the next year and the next year. So it's not at all uncommon to find people who have been on them 10, 15, 20 years. Right. Right. And the research is much of it for the SSRIs, as as far as I understand, they were really only meant to be used for like six months or a year. They're not life uh, treatments. They're more uh, a temporary stability, a foundation that you can build on. But that's not in the culture to to use it like that. It's either kind of this polarity of either, you know, just medication is the only thing that works for mental health stuff. And if you don't take it, you know, whatever. And the other is that uh, no medications help. It's all in your mind. There's these kind of like two, um, two polarities right. moving between. Right. And so I have had many, many patients over the decades that say, well, I've been on this for 10 years now, five years now, 15 years now, and I'm really doing so much better. I would like to get off. And mm-hmm. so it's you can't really stop those cold turkey, as they say, you kind of ramp down on the dosage. And sometimes just the shifting brain chemistry can cause a little bit of emotional turmoil for people. And I have found herbs to work wonderfully for that. And so have on many occasions used them in tandem. So I think that's an important thing to mention because I think there's a a rumor out there that you can't use herbal medicines if Mm. you're on a a psych med. And I don't believe that's that's true. I I agree a hundred, a hundred percent. And in the, in the beginning, there's kind of like a lot of hesitation around that because many of the things we learn at school and, you know, from within Uh, like the conventional approach to medicine, there's kind of like this bias. There's this kind of hidden bias where it's like, there's this like danger to nature and like, you know, science and the, uh, uh, you know, specifically extracting compound checking and all that, that makes it safe. And then everything else is like, you know, I hear all the time, ridiculous contraindications and interactions list with like really mild herbs like chamomile and ashwagandha and they don't seem to accord with uh, experience right because if you've taken 
you know, higher doses of that, you know, generally what it does and what it feels like and what it can do and things like that. That's really, that's really good to bring that up because I think a lot of people, particularly if they're interested in getting some kind of healthcare, they might, that that's usually their first question. They were like, I'm on this medication. I, it's not really helping me. That's really kind of the worst part of it. A lot of times it's, it's not helping me anymore or it never really did. Um, and then how do I, how do I transition, you know, off? Is there an herb? Uh, can, can I use it with herbs? So, so thank you for addressing that. I think that's really important to kind of clear that the air on that. Um, so what, what herbs do you find yourself using most frequently for, for, a, let's say for somebody who's like struggling with uh, depression, maybe they're on a medication, maybe they're not. Like, what are some of the herbs that that come to mind? Well, let me introduce a couple of classic herbal category words. Yes, please. Um, and that would be the adaptogens and the nervines. Mm -hmm. And both of these are kind of vague and broad, but if I were to answer what herbs, it would be those, those groups of herbs. So let's talk about that for a moment. Nervines is just an ancient herbal word that simply means a nerve tonic. And it can be a sedating nervine, something like kava would be a profoundly sedating, um, it's almost drug-like for an herb. Um, two, you mentioned chamomile, something that's just very gentle and mild um, would be a nervine. And then a few in between might be passion flower, that's passiflora incarnata, or skullcap, that's scutellaria. And many of these plants have had their turn in the research arena at the present time. And we find many of them having have overlapping um, neurotransmitter effects. They have SSRI ability. They have um, the ability to bind to GABA receptors. That's the same place where the benzodiazepine category of drugs, the Valium, for example, binds. So nervines. Um, are a broad acting group of medicinal plants that ancient peoples found soothe their pain, soothe their emotional upset, calm down heart palpitations, uh, calm down muscle spasms, help them sleep better, help them relax if they were more of a tense, nervous person, or just for crises, something happens, some kind of trauma, you could rely on these plants to help you relax. So the nervines are a fairly sizable list of different herbs from chamomile and oats, being really gentle and almost food-like, to something like kava, which is almost drug-like. If you took enough kava, like just kept pounding it every 10 minutes, every 10 minutes, you could get intoxicated from it. So there's this gamut of herbs and many of them are more of the food-like um, nutritive category. So we'll, we'll come back to some examples of using them, but let me also introduce the term adaptogen. Adaptogen was coined after research on Siberian ginseng, that's a leutherococcus, and it is a relative of Panax ginseng or Chinese ginseng, after a leutherococcus was noted to have a similar tonic effect, but adaptogens work via the adrenal glands. 
And for anyone who's just not familiar, just a crash course in the adrenals that is so named um, because it produces adrenaline, or we could say it the other way, adrenaline is so named because it's released from the adrenal gland, those sympathetic kind of nervous system chemicals that heighten our activity, that raise our blood pressure, speed up our heart rate, make us perspire, moves blood out of the gut and the digestive system and into our muscles for that fight or flight response in case we have to run, in case we have to fight, that old classic definition of the sympathetic nervous system. And along with uh, adrenaline release um, are our stress hormones, such as the corticoids, cortisol. And so whenever we're under chronic stress, we're always kind of stimulating the adrenal gland to be releasing those stress hormones. So it can make our blood pressure go up. Um, it can make us more edgy and have muscle tension. It can interfere with our sleep at night. Um, and what I said about moving blood out of the digestive system and into our musculature, um, it can just impair with our optimal digestion of food, which is more of a parasympathetic uh, nervous system. Mm -hmm. uh, Rest and digest. Rest and digest, exactly. And so whenever we're pushing ourselves, and sometimes it could be the, you know, something fairly um, pleasant, like you are enjoying your garden, for example, that I'm, that's a passion of mine, or you're enjoying um, caring for your children, or you're enjoying preparing for guests to come over. But even those sorts of things kind of keep our sympathetic nervous system going. Hopefully you can shut those things off at night to rest and digest and get restful sleep. But many of us find when you can't shut off your mind at night and you're thinking about tomorrow's to-do list, or you're thinking about something stressful that happened during the day, or you wake up in the middle of the night, you you slept well for a couple hours and now you woke up for some reason and you can't get back to sleep. Mm -hmm. We often find in... Um, research on doing nighttime cortisol checks that our cortisol and those stress hormones should go down at night and kind of stay down while we're sleeping. But the more we've investigated this or done various salivary or blood or kinds of laboratory investigations, our, for some people, the cortisol stays high for a long period of time and we can't fall asleep or maybe it does decline at 8 or 9 p.m. when the sun goes down. But as soon as you wake up and roll over, boom, you, your monkey mind starts going and up goes those stress hormones, which makes it harder to sleep. It can interfere with our blood glucose regulation. It can interfere with our digestion. It can interfere with our quality of sleep. So that is so common that I'm mentioning this because I adore adaptogens for just the average person with stress-related symptoms for myself, for um, immune reasons as well. When our cortisol is constantly high, it suppresses your white blood cell activity and can have um, effects on allergic phenomena and immune regulation. So the adaptogen group of plants is also used for people who are ill a lot or have simple little infections that linger a long time or little colds that turn into a sinus infection or a little post-nasal drip that turns into a bronchitis or something. Infections mm -hmm. that just 
we don't recover or bounce back well from. Sometimes putting people on adaptogens um, boosts their um, immune response and cortisol regulation and stress hormone regulation sufficiently that they have better immunity in addition to better stress tolerance and better sleep. So they're so versatile and helpful for so many people. And one more thing, and I'll leave adaptogens, but when our cortisol is constantly high, like our mind is always running saying, okay, get up out of bed or another work day or meet this deadline or company's coming or the kids have all these needs, our cortisol uh, will be high for years on end sometimes. Mm -hmm. and what happens is a phenomena called downregulation. Downregulation literally means the number of receptors on the adrenal gland. There's millions, but say the let's say there's those five. Um, Downregulation occurs when we're constantly bombarding all of those receptors. Like get up and work, kind of like whipping a tired horse. Come on, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up that pretty soon the adrenal gland senses, this is too much. Um, I'm gonna wear out by the time I'm 50 if I don't do something about this. So it will kind of decrease um, the number of receptors it has. And now you can't respond to all those signals so much. You have to settle for half adrenal function, but the adrenal gland says, eh, that's probably better than pooping out by the time I'm 50. <laughs> limp along for another 50 years with this half response. And so similarly, when we're exhausted and uh, we are have foggy thinking or the least little stress seems to cripple us in some ways, um, researchers and biochemists and physiologists and psychiatrists have used the term adrenal downregulation. And so adaptogens also seem to help that feedback loop between our brain and our thought processes and the stimulation to our adrenal glands. And so when we're exhausted and can't think clearly or can't meet demands, and that contributes to depression and anxiety too, the adaptogens are just so all purpose for so many reasons. So I'm winding my way back to your question, what's kind of some herbal approaches, I would always almost always choose an adaptogen or two in a formula. Or in some cases, it might be one or two adaptogen like pills that are commercially available on the marketplace, and then put more in a tincture that I would combine with those nerving herbs or anything that seems specific for the individual. Or if it wasn't a pill or it wasn't a tincture, there would also be the possibility of making one of those teas, whether it be chamomile and passion flower, and you combine that with a ginseng pill or ashwagandha is a one wonderful adaptogen. Licorice is an adaptogen. Panax ginseng is a, an adaptogen. So there's a little handful of herbs and a lot of them, as we've looked at the research, they affect cortisol levels, adrenal output, um, kind of neurochemistry in the realms of stress activation pathways in the brain. And those combine beautifully with herbal teas and herbal tinctures that contain nervines or nutritive herbs or blood sugar regulating herbs or um, kind of whatever might be specific for the individual. Some women's menstrual cycles and hormonal ups and downs can kind of be another sort of contributor or burden to maintaining our um, calm. And so sometimes I'll choose mm -hmm. for some women to put in a motherwort, that's Leonoris, 
is a nice uh, kind of calming nerve herb, plus seems to help with female hormone regulation. Or Vitex or black cohosh are nice choices for women with premenstrual anxiety or menopausal anxiety or hormone ups and downs and ups and downs that mm. really can um, trigger some stressful feelings or some hard to cope irritability. Um, and those herbs are a nice complement to the adaptogen, the nervine, and a third hormone balancing herb to kind of round out a formula. So I will custom formulate for any given individual because not only are there adaptogens and nervines, the more and more you study individual herbs, what in herbal medicine we call materia medica, just an old Latin um, equivalent of the medical materials. Once you get to know each one of them, they have their little personalities. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, when you can recognize those patterns, oh, this is a heart palpitation with hormones, Leonoris, or this is a fibromyalgia headache, um, that's black cohosh, and so on. You can really pick and choose those precise herbs that have a specific niche indication and match them with something that's kind of all purpose, like the licorice or like the chamomile and, and do an excellent job. Once when you're sort of have that level of knowledge of materia medica, you can really do some slam dunk uh, kinds of formulas for people that really help in a rapid way with anxiety, with depression, with helping wean from the pharmaceuticals, with improving sleep, um, and all of those common presentations in a general kind of mental health arena in our practices. I, uh, yeah, that that's, I agree a hundred percent that nervine and adaptogen area that seems to be where the, the bulk of like specifically targeted herbs for mental health. But as you point out, uh, Mental health isn't simple, right? There's there's like the underlying thing. As naturopaths, we we try to look for the original cause, and mm -hmm. I've noticed that a lot in my work too. That sometimes maybe you know a patient came in with what seemed like run of the mill, like kind of anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, that kind of thing. Uh, but on further investigation, it turns out, oh wow, it's so linked to their cycle. It's like a clock. Their depression starts at this point in the cycle and comes back. Um, to where for, for those patients, it's not even necessarily using like the typical, uh, herbs. They're usually part of it, like the nervine adaptogen, as you said, but focusing in on what's, uh, the underlying root of the dysfunction. I think that's really important. Obviously the hormones, the endocrine system is, you know, it's separated only as much as we investigate it. Like the body is not individual units communicating. It, it really is like a, a unity that has, you know, different, different aspects working. So, so the nervines, the adaptogens, and then uh, a lot of the hormonal herbs and, and many other categories, uh, depending on the specific, uh, what are, what are some formulas that you have found that are surprisingly uh, useful or important in treating mental health, like maybe combinations of a few herbs or two herbs that seem to go together, anything kind of gems that you've picked up over the. That, that would be a hard one for me. Um, I do have 
I, that would be hard because I should explain why, because I will custom formulate. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I will often put ashwagandha in tons of formulas. Mm -hmm. Um, I will often choose uh, my nerving tea. I do have a kind of pat formula nerving tea, which is um, chamomile, scutellaria, passionflower, St. John's wort, and those are all nervines. And then it's made more palatable uh, with a little bit of spearmint and a little bit of licorice. And then just a handful of lavender, lavender mm -hmm. flowers. Too much lavender makes it taste kind of bitter, but a little bit of lavender gives it that wonderful lavender aroma. And that is a number, another nerving that lavender you might have heard of goes straight through the limbic system, even the aroma. There's um, some clinical studies on just inhaling lavender, like off the palms of your hands, lavender essential oil, or if you have the fresh plant for 10 minutes, will produce more restful sleep or will calm uh, down anxiety. And you can produce a measurable decrease in blood pressure, for example. There have been some clinical studies in that regard. So that is a patent kind of go-to formula. I keep my nervine tea on hand and it flies out of my apothecary. Mm -hmm. um, and a number of people just keep it on hand, not necessarily because they're trying to treat their anxiety per se. They just like to unwind with it in the evenings. And like I was saying, it's helpful for us all to develop ways to just keep calm in a stressful world. And, and many people find that's a great tool for them in the evening when you get home from a busy day or are um, trying to prepare for bed, that that's helpful for them. Um, other combinations, I think I do like to combine St. John's, excuse me, um, ashwagandha with Vitex and with black cohosh for um, menopausal women with cycle irregularities and stress and anxiety and poor sleep due to menopause, for example, that's very helpful. Um, maybe St. John's work could be in there as well, but Vitex and black cohosh both seem to affect dopamine in the brain and dopamine affects FSH and LH. That's luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone that tend to go up and down and up and up and down in the perimenopausal years, sometimes interfering with sleep or being associated with irritability or anxiety states or hot flashes. And so those are kind of an ace in the whole duo, Vitex and, Saint, uh, Vitex and Black Cohosh um, combined with ashwagandha, that's an adaptogen. And that trio is great. And then maybe adding in a few other herbs as needed. And then there's a few companies that make proprietary um, adrenal products. And I do often use those. Some include um, animal gland, uh, actual adrenal gland with zinc and vitamin C. The adrenal gland um, has the highest vitamin C content of any other organ. So obviously it's important to adrenal function. So some companies make just a glandular, like um, a few companies that specialize in glandular extracts will produce some great adrenal tonics. And then other companies will combine the adrenal glandular with ashwagandha or with eleutherococcus or with licorice, some of those adaptogen herbs. And I found those to be quite reliable. And then some companies that have a more vegan, let's say, option with no glandular in it, it's purely the um, herbal ingredients, such as the ashwagandha combined with nervine herbs or licorice ashwagandha and 
um, holy basil or something, some of those calmative ingredients, and those work well too. Um, using those products, I think a dose of at least twice a day um, and kept up for three to six months. I tell my patients not to be too disappointed um, until we've done it regularly for three months. And many people actually see improvement in two or three weeks, but it helps with compliance and kind of helps keep expectations realistic to not expect this to work like popping a Tylenol or a Xanax mm -hmm. It's something that's really going to tone those feedback loops between our stress activation neurotransmitters in the brain and that adrenal cortisol receptor responses and so on. That can take a few months to really um, have a significant impact. So people can be pleasantly surprised if they're better in, in 10 days, three weeks or something like that. And I often tell them, if you see a little bit in a month or so, that's a good sign that kept up three months, six months, we can really do a powerful sort of overhaul of your nervous system irritability and responsiveness. Um, so I do like to use some of those products. So those aren't a formula per se, but some of the, just my standard approach would be to use one of those off the shelf adrenal tonics combined with my own Nervine tea, combined with a herbal tincture formula that I would custom make for someone based on those specific niche indications of knowing the materia medica well. That, that sounds like a very, that's a very complete approach. And I think that's the kind of thing that that's necessary for actually dealing with uh, kind of chronic mental health issues, like people who have a tendency to get anxious or depressed, they have most of their life. Um, it's no surprise that, you know, it, it's not going to get, you know, quote unquote, fixed over overnight. It's, uh, you know, a very uh, gradual process. And even the best, most potent pharmaceuticals, they say, wait, you know, two or four weeks before you say if it's working or not. Um, right. But it's all to say that there are alternatives, right? There, There's options. And not only is there options, there's good options. There's potentially ones that can help where others wouldn't. There's ones that might be safer where others aren't, that kind of thing. And I think what we're suffering from right now in mental health is just a lack of education about it, about all the different you know, self-care things you can do to regulate your own mood state, uh, the the importance of all the naturopathic uh, foundational health, like exercise, mindfulness, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that all has to be part of it, right? But mm -hmm. I guess the approach for, if we're trying to find a medication or a um, an herbal formula that really helps someone, uh, it it has to put them in a place where they can do all the other things, right? It's almost like if somebody's so exhausted, so depressed, uh, you know, they can't even do that lifestyle practice, like that yoga or meditation, unless they feel a little bit better. So I, I like to view it uh, like that. Sometimes it could be short term, sometimes longer term. Um, yeah, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to treat mental health. It's not for no... Um, it's not for no reason that the the knowledge is so little and a lot of it seems kind of like guesswork, like even with medications and things like that. Um, when you, when you do have a patient that is on a medication and they're seeking to like gradually wean off, is there any particular formulas or herbs that 
you have found to be helpful is mainly ones like with nervines and kind of restorative? It's the same it's the same approach as I would use to treat them were they not on an SSRI. I would I would ask them what are the symptoms that led you to go on to the pharmaceutical because often the weaning um, symptoms, if they have any, will be something similar. Oh, I couldn't sleep or I was angry all the time or my blood pressure went way up and I was having panic attack, like whatever it is, that would be my indication. Okay, pick those specific niche herbs for my custom formula. And I would still want maybe an adrenal tonic or still want a B vitamin or still want a sleep formula if it seemed that that was their obstacle. Um, So I would still just treat it as specifically as possible. And I would usually want those herbs to be on board for one to two months. Um, So I usually pick a middle six weeks or kind of whatever is convenient for our follow-up and make sure everything feels fine and taking the herbs and they've been able to consistently take them. They settle in their stomach well, they've got a daily habit going, everything seems fine. And then we're ready to wean off from the pharmaceutical. So let's just pick a Prozac um, example. If somebody's on 40 milligrams of Prozac, you can go right down to 20 milligrams typically without a whole lot of problem. There, there will be some exceptions, but I found most people, you can go right to 20 with no problem. And you check on them again in a month or two months. And if at 20 milligrams, everything is still fine, you can go to 10 milligrams and then five. So you just kind of ramp down- the gradual. Over many, uh, many months time, really. Um, usually, ha- Take a month for however many years somebody has been on the pharmaceutical. So if it's one of those individuals who has been on for a decade, Mm -hmm. you might want to develop a plan that is 10 months long, like two months at this dose and then two months at that dose and two months at this dose. And then once you get down to five milligrams, you can take five milligrams every other day. And then you can take five milligrams every third day. And Mm -hmm. then you can just quit without any trouble. If at any point in that ramping down process, somebody feels uptight or has anxiety or has irritability, or they feel like crying all the time or whatever those symptoms were that landed them on that pharmaceutical in the first place, you can always just go right back up and either take a longer period of time to wean down or adjust your formulas that you're offering them Make sure they're sleeping, make sure they're eating well, make sure they have all of their lifestyle sort of things in place like we were speaking of, and then try it again in a month or two to go back to that troublesome spot in your weaning process or ramp down process and see if um, you can get through in a calmer, calmer way, knowing exactly what will happen and anticipating it. So it's usually very, very possible. And I think eight out of 10 people have no trouble whatsoever. And the other 20%, oops, let's just go back up for another couple of months and let's make this tweak or this change and try it again. But virtually everyone who I've worked with has been able to wean wean off of those pharmaceuticals. So I don't have a special formula that's for weaning from pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. We treat the special people. Yeah, uh, yeah, agreed, agreed 100%. Uh, it reminds me of what you mentioned earlier about the receptor uh, regulation and things like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Uh, and how that applies the same to receptors of serotonin, dopamine, et cetera. So 
uh, yeah, the gradual approach is is really the best for, for especially with anything that has a very strong um, strong uh, effect. And I have noticed that too. Uh, sometimes what I do when a patient gets to that kind of sticking point where they get uh, this, so they're feeling great, feeling great. They're uh, gradually over a couple of weeks, and then one week they're just they're suddenly feeling the brain zaps and all the different uh, things that that can happen. What I like to do there is just, as you said, to go back up or just stop there and just wait until that settles out. Because it's really just a matter of time when it comes to regulation of neurochemistry and things. And we any input that we put in, it um, it goes it goes back out, kind of. I guess. Um, yeah, that that totally makes sense. So there's there's a lot of new stuff going on, obviously, in uh, Oregon with uh, psilocybin therapy and th- things along that line. And that kind of connects with these older traditions. What's what's your view about the, the potential of, you know, those kind of like sacred plants or, uh, you know, uh, entheogens, et cetera? Where do you see them in mental and spiritual health? Like, do you think that they can be integrated into the medical system? Is there things we should worry about? I'm very happy to see the development and the renewed interest and the removal of obstacles to legally being able to access some of these fabulous medicines. Mm -hmm. I like that term entheogen. The word theo in Latin refers to God, like theology, uh, for example, or theocracy, or uh, theology, the study of God. So an um, entheogen is to invoke your God self. Mm -hmm. And I that's, you know, a fantastic um, connection with those plants is so many people do have a spiritual or sacred experience. They feel themselves connected with the world around them. They feel themselves to be um, a small part of some greater godlike entity that moves throughout the universe or connects them with the planet and God's creations kind of thing. So they're powerful plants. And not only powerful that when we ingest them, the obvious experience that people have that is often life-changing for them and feels personal and feels profound and feels powerful, um, the research on them finds that we grow new neural connections instantly, which is just fascinating. Some very interesting stuff going on with that research, like single-time use. Mm -hmm they check back a year later, no PTSD, like crazy stuff that shouldn't be possible. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it brings up this concept of brain plasticity or neuroplasticity. And what this refers to is we actually can grow new neurons. We know this anytime we learn something new, there wasn't a Um, a place in your brain to play the piano or ride the bike until you did that. And then you develop muscle memory from um, how your fingers would play the piano without you really thinking about it or riding the bike and you have your balance and it's just a piece of cake after you get through that initial learning curve. And what enables that is you make new connections in in your brain, you literally grow new connections. And when we have certain thought patterns or obsession, obsessions or anxiety or depression, we kind of develop neurons that keep going in the same way, almost like a, a rutted highway where you can't get your tire out of the tire track or this wheel tread. You can't really jump out of the track. It's so entrenched and so powerful. 
And we have these obsessive compulsive disorders where almost every connection, every activity of your mind somehow gets corrupted and put through this faulty wiring that's all obsessed about cleaning or locking the doors or whatever it is. Or similarly, anxiety. We can't really be in the moment because we're attached to some trauma in the past or worried about future safety or finances or what have you. Um, where all of our thought processes are funneled through that tire rut in the road. So to grow new neural connections and get us out of that track, like to kind of jump out of that rut and think in a different way is a powerful thing. And most of the research has been on animals because you can sacrifice the animal and do brain kind of histological examinations and really look at those neurons and dye them in a certain way and see, um, kind of prove, what new um, neural connections could be had through single uses of ketamine and psilocybin and other entheogenic substances. But so too, people can do more sophisticated MRI studies and find that if you're stuck in habitual thinking, be it low self-esteem or anxiety or depression, those same little spots in your brain light up. Like that's just where you live. That's where your spirit dwells and where your psyche is. And with a single use or under under the influence of an entheogen, suddenly all kinds of areas of the brain light up anew. It's just fascinating and fabulous. And I think a lot of wonderful medicines and healing can be had from this. And especially when this is done under the auspices of some sort of um, guided psychiatric um, tutelage, somebody that's adept in using these substances simultaneously with somebody that knows what your obstacles and your process mm -hmm. is. But in a way, we can kind of pull up that anchor of habitual thinking and cast ourselves free uh, to think in a new way. And some people have um, likened it to being able to turn the lens just in a different way and all of a sudden see, well, that's a stinky way to be thinking. I don't want to do that anymore. Or I'm really wasting my life away smoking or using this addictive substance. I don't want to do that anymore. And just say, you're done with it. That is a fabulous thing. And there are a lot of cases of that people being hopelessly addicted to this or that. And then it's like the experience that they have. It just makes it so obvious what their path forward should be that mm -hmm. sometimes it's like effort. I've heard of some stories of just like effortless remissions from different uh, kinds of issues and things like that. And it, it makes, it makes sense. You know, this like resurgence of, of interest in psychedelics for, uh, for specifically medicinal usages it's not new. I mean, we have like, of course, like the 70s, 60s, where that was already psychiatrists were already, they were some of the first ones to be trying these things because they were seeing miraculous things happening uh, to patients with mental health disorders that literally there was no medication for and nothing else worked. And then this seemed to work well. Um, and then going, you know, farther back, probably into prehistory, the use of mind altering plants in like a kind of shamanic spiritual context, which are almost always in a healing context too. They're not in a recreational context, although it can be recreational, um, just like any good thing can be. Uh, yeah, I, I agree completely. I think it's really, um, 
I'm, I'm very excited to see because next year it seems like they'll have the full like programs where people can become uh, like facilitators and things like that. Just in uh, just in Oregon so far, but hopefully other states will will join and in. I'm um, in Washington and we're just on the cusp as well. I believe oh, great. 2023 to 2024. OK, great. Yeah, probably the whole West Coast will be. Uh, I think these states like the kind of like they follow each other's suit for better or worse. In yeah, this case, go, for better. Go Pacifica. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, another thing to add in there that I think you would agree with, uh, having the proper, you know, like subjective or even like the proper ritual parts of it, whatever they may be, whether they're like secular or related to ancient traditions or something like that. I, I think there's something that, uh, you know, uh, shamans throughout time do in their art of, of the set and setting as, as they would, uh, uh, not as they would say, as we might say, um, that that part is just as important as just the physiological and just the neurochemical, because obviously, uh, things like psilocybin, if they're microdose, they do have pharmacological effects a lot around in the serotonin type area, although not recommended without further information to experiment with such things. Um, so they have those different effects, but having the proper therapeutic context, I think is in many cases necessary to have the kind of transformative experience too. Like it's not, it's not always just that using the, the entheogen, like, you know, in a lab with headphones on or something like that, that that you'll probably, you know, have a very transformative experience, but to, to work with the mind and the spirit at the same time as that uh, pharmacological physiological effect is going on. Um, yeah, like anything, you get out of it what you put into it. And so anything that's sort of taken as a party drug or without a great deal of intention, you might have wonderful lessons that come to you, but that can be so much boosted by having an intention and a setting, as you say, around it. And if you know that I want to work on this obstacle or I'm going to prepare myself for the next three months to get the most out of this as possible, um, often in the Amazon, as I've said, where I've spent so much time, they have the ayahuasca healing ritual there, which is a very powerful entheogen itself. And they will often have people follow dietas. And a dieta is a literal diet, but it also is a way of setting your intentionality for at least a few days ahead of time and sometimes many weeks ahead of time. Part of that could be biochemical. You don't want to have too much um, tyramine or different sorts of amino acids that might be harmful for certain people in the brain, but some of it is just detoxing. So your liver and your gut and your intestines can really handle the kind of powerful chemicals that are ayahuasca. So they say no salt and no fried food and um, eating mainly a light diet of steamed vegetables and um, they do allow meat just like boiled chicken or something like that um, is, is typical, but they also say no sex and certain um, practices that are 
not purely biochemical. It's almost like a discipline to prepare your body to be fully focused on your healing and not really distracted by this sort of um, sensual distraction or this addiction or this food or this kind of mindless TV watching, drinking coffee and eating chips or something like that. You're preparing to meet a powerful um healer basically and they take it very seriously and the so the dieta idea um, is typical of the ayahuasca ceremonies and i think it serves both a biochemical and a, a psychological um good uh preparation and purpose for that reason to to be as mindful and prepared and ready to receive your lessons as possible yeah i I think the diet idea is a, is a great one that should be applied really to every entheogen in terms of, as you said, there are those like, it, it seems almost as uh, those traditions, they like accidentally stumbled upon like the physiological things that can happen if you like eat a lot of smoked meats or something like that, uh, where we can look back and say, oh, well, that was really smart. Uh, and but the discipline aspect of it, of like making it, it, it's like you make it into something. When you make something into something, it is something. And with, uh, with psychedelics, they, they tend to amplify what's going on. They don't necessarily like add in or, or bring something in. So if somebody's feeling in a certain mood state, like they've been very like worried about things, then those are the kind of things that get brought up. But if in the couple of days before the mind is all focused on, this is the issue I want to work on. This is what I'm struggling with. So like the subconscious is working, they're thinking about it, might be dreaming about it, uh, working actively. And then it's like a activator on that day where, uh, it's like consciously they're using it for one thing and the physiological aspect is uh, supportive to that, to that total experience. Sometimes it could be a really hard experience. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes parts of it are, I don't think I've ever had personally an experience that didn't have sections of like right in hell for like a couple of minutes, but actually those things most interesting to me was that those things were the most healing aspects that mm-hmm. like after it was all said and done, those like forays into like really difficult existential fears and things like that, that it, it changes, it changes everything basically. Um, I think some of the, some of the theories around its effects on like the default mode network, as you were uh, alluding to before with like the, the normal state of the mind and the normal wiring where it's like, it's just like a reset button. It's just like, okay, different function. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of approach, I'm very hopeful, very hopeful for that, especially if it's implemented right, because I think for some cases, that is the only kind of thing that can work when it's like somebody is like stuck in a rut that they've been stuck in for 10 years, like some like mild change usually won't do the thing. They, a lot of times they need to have like a really intense experience. Um, and it, not just from psyched, uh, psychedelic, for example, like a traumatic experience or something, uh, maybe something happens, they like hit rock bottom or something like that, where they suddenly are like, okay, I need to change my whole life. And a lot of times those people, they do, or they get like a diagnosis, like a terminal diagnosis or something, God forbid. And they're like, 
it like hits them. They have that experience. And now all of a sudden, everything's different. Their whole perspective of the world is different. The, the entheogens can temporarily induce that kind of uh, an experience so different that when you, when you come back to the normal world, it's like you, you can kind of see it differently. Um, particularly if you had a good experience with it, those are, those are obviously the best, the ones that are connecting, the ones where you feel united. That's a very, I, I wonder uh, why that is so common for the entheogens and those kind of things. Do you have any idea or, or theory why that aspect of like feeling that unity or that connection, like, is that something that just exists? And then the entheogen like, kind of like takes away all your BS and you can finally see it. And then, you know, when it wears off, you come back into the normal human thing or. I think, yes, it actually exists, but I would have a hard time like showing you <laughs> right. any proof of that. But yeah. I, I think, yes, I think really it makes sense. If you look at sort of Gaian philosophy that we've all evolved out of this planet and we're really part of the same carbon that keeps being recycled from the earth to the body to the atmosphere and so on we really are a living breathing conglomerate of shared experience and shared chemistry and shared earth air fire and water and it probably is an illusion to think that we're separate and certainly that we're the the conquerors of the planet and the dominant best species i think we keep proving how wrong that idea is <laughs> but I, I think it is true that we truly are connected and that entheogens allow us to see that and feel that. Um, and I guess that might be a personal spiritual perspective, but entheogens certainly do evoke that common experience for many users. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's one of those questions that it, it can't be proven or disproven. However, when you take like a certain amount of psilocybin it's kind of like hard to refute it. However, yeah, I, I, I would agree. That's, that's been my experience too. And I know that uh, certain like meditative practices can also bring about a certain uh, similar type of experience where it's like mm -hmm. the feeling of like self-identity, it like kind of relaxes and like the thought patterns go away and then you get like a new feeling where it's not as personal, it's more connected. Yeah, that's true. And just yoga itself, when I'm told that it means in Sanskrit is union. Mm -hmm. And when we practice yoga together, like in a class, you can easily kind of feel connected with the other people as you're breathing together or straining together or relaxing together or just doing yoga by yourself. You suddenly turn inward and all of those chatter things that we were talking about that really are detractions from our calm um, place of mental health, our to-do lists and our worries and our stresses, just kind of turning inward and taking those few deep breaths just at the very initiation of a yoga session just starts to cut through, okay, that's all out there and somewhat superfluous to my survival and my inner being and my spirit. And now this is the real, real me and you ground and you become um, unified yoga, the, the study of union. Mm. Yeah, like integrated with with your own self, all the different, the bad and the good and uh, mm -hmm. those kind of things. It can be really very powerful. Uh, the kind of experience, the entheogenic experience of something like MDMA, where it's used for PTSD, 
I think one of the big takeaways from that research is that what differed in those in those um, subjects being tested versus those that that didn't receive the MDMA is it it brought up these like difficult experiences for people, these difficult memories. But because of the state they were in, they almost could like look at it objectively and they could see like, okay, it's not actually my fault. Like this idea I have is kind of like ridiculous and like, yeah, this was painful. And like, there's no, nothing I can really say about, uh, you know, that was a hard experience. It gives some kind of mm-hmm. new vantage point on your own yeah. life and your own thoughts. And, and sometimes, Absolutely. I mean, going out camping for a week can do the same thing. Uh, going on a yoga routine can do the same thing where you finally have some time with yourself to quiet down. You could see what is actually true, what is not true. You know, it's a really helpful tool. So I'm super excited for next year. Hopefully people do it super carefully and the people who are facilitators don't go around willy nilly because they're really strong. I, uh, psychedelics in the doses that they're used like for therapeutic purposes, I mean, are stronger than pharmaceuticals. You can say if there was on like a line in oh, terms yeah. of the you know, sudden effects. Amazing substances to be sure. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from those traditions that you've you've studied, you know, in the Amazon, things like that, um, about herbalism, about yourself, maybe just a few bullet points? Well, this will be the closing remark because okay. my garden is calling. And that Perfect. We end on the most important thing. My union place that where I need to ground today, but... Um, I have I have observed that many of those cultures do not regard entheogens as drugs um, or chemicals whatsoever, and I've learned a lot from that. Um, they will talk, they'll speak to it as medicine sometimes, but I think that's more this current generation just trying to relate to tourists or trying to relate to people curious to come see their medicine, they will call it medicine, but amongst themselves and some of the words will be um, treating those powerful plants as personages in a way. Um, They are teachers, there's guides. And so in Spanish, um, they have the term planta maestra, and maestra is the word for master, but that's also the same word for teacher. They believe that when you imbibe these, that spirit of the plant enters your body and affects your psyche in a way that teaches you things. And it teaches everybody something different because we're all having individual struggles or obstacles and we're all different people. So that plant kind of permeates our spirit and teaches us different things depending on who we are and what we need. And so the term of planta maestra um, embraces the idea that these are personalities of some sort and that the plants are every bit as alive as we are and plants Um, like humans, all have their different spirit or soul. And so it changes to relate to the plant realm as not our resources or not something less alive than animals, but every bit as alive as us and aware and having intelligence. Mm -hmm. And when we ingest those, especially in a mindful way, as we were speaking of, we can be given the blessing of lessons of those um, plant beings, if you will. And another term that is sometimes used is madre de, 
which means mother of, mother of ayahuasca or mm. mother of the coca plant, madre de coca, madre de ayahuasca. And it refers to this um, like nurturing spirit inside those plants. And there's been a number of traditional Amazonian um, artists who kind of depict the um, experience that they have mm -hmm. under the ayahuasca. Like, uh, Pablo Amaringo? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, oh, he's... that's one of the most famous ones. That's great. And they will often depict, like, picture a tree trunk with a mother spirit, like a humanoid, like spirit running all through the branches. And then the branches are like arms that can come and embrace you. And they're telling you something very sacred and very nurturing and very healing that's for you. And that's your lesson. And once you have that medicine within you, you can carry it with you forever, kind of like being able to pick up a phone and call your best friend to cheer you up when you're feeling down or give you a reality check if you're afraid you're not really seeing things clearly or got too much ego involved in the game or something. You know that there's certain people that will give you that perspective. And that's what you're talking about, changing your perspective mm. of things or what I said earlier about it seems to give us a different lens through viewing our behaviors or viewing our obstacles or viewing some of our human frailties and deciding I don't need to be that way anymore. I'm not going to think that way anymore. Or I have the courage to now take this step. And it's thought that once you really connect with the madre, the some plant spirit, you don't have to keep ingesting it again and again and again mm -hmm. to get benefits you just do that calming down and center and, gr and grounding and decide well what what is my plant guide going to tell me to do here mm. and you can be in touch with that spirit and the shaman um i think there are such a thing as real shaman that have dedicated their life to um, being in touch with their spirit the spirit beings of the jungle the plant spirits of of the different um, medicines that they work with. And they don't necessarily even need to ingest the plants with the community that they're treating anymore. They can kind of peer into your vision and kind of work with the spirit that's already alive in them. Mm -hmm. And I've met a few impressive people. And when you think about like a really scholar, somebody who has really excelled at, um, getting a PhD or two PhDs, or they have this discipline and that discipline, and they're just experts in an academic way. That's what our culture has embraced as being really accomplished. And when you look at some of the um, people who are really adept at the ayahuasca shamanism, they don't know anything about biochemistry and they don't have any degrees, but they have spent their whole life almost like getting the equivalent of a couple PhDs in the spirit realm. They've worked hard at it. It's a lifelong discipline. They've taken it seriously. They've cultivated that way of knowing. And they have some impressive skills at, at healing people because of it. So in our Western paradigm, that's all about placebo, double blind, yeah. control studies and looking at the molecules. It's all about the compound and that, yep. this and that. And that's the most important thing and how that affects the neurotransmitters. Yeah. But what and about what about all the experience stuff, which is the only thing that exists really for us as far as humans? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it in my experience, it does. That is what it feels like in a higher dose psilocybin 
um, especially when you do it with the kind of a dieta preparation intention, it does feel like there is, I don't, I don't know if it is the case, but that's definitely what you experience that there's some, there's like you and there's some like elderly spirit. That's like, look here, think about this. Think about this. You remember when this happened where it almost happens automatically. Um, yeah. I like, I, yeah. I like that a lot. That's a, this perfect place to end. Um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Stansbury. Uh, where can people, uh, you know, find you? Are you on social media? Do you uh, have a website you'd like people to visit? Yeah, since I'm spending most time in my apothecary these days, it's probably the best resource, but I have two websites, Battleground Healing Arts, all one word, battlegroundhealingarts.com, and also healingartsapothecary.org.org, and both of those have messaging systems. The Apothecary is my main website that has a number of different podcasts and has a number of different resource pages and just some um, beginner files that are free PDFs for people to download and take a look at. It also has a link to my five-volume herbal formularies series, my textbook series that is more the molecular muckety-muck and my own um, my own um, sharing of my decades in practice that are actual formulas for everything A through Z um, that people can take a look at as well. So thank you so much for having me. And I'd love a, a link to this as well. And I'll, I'll put it in my collection of podcasts on that resource page. Excellent. Uh, thank you. Thank you again so much. Um, I hope you uh, enjoy your, your garden and, and connecting with the plants. I think that idea of plant spirits is, is an important, it's an important one. It's a very important one to work with. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it again someday. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's, it's kind of a fascinating topic that we could take in other directions too. Yeah. It would be interesting to see what happens in a, in a year or so. I would like to see a lot of the integration of those, those ideas in the way that we use those, uh, you know those entheogens because like you said they're not they're not drugs like they are drugs if that's how you view them and that's how you use them like you make a psilocybin compound extract and you say take three times a day and it'll have great physiological effect and medicinal effects too probably uh for most people but you know having that that total experience where your understanding like the archetypal significance of it like those things are just as important as everything else they, they are what make up human life and healing is about human life so yeah it reminds me of quantum physics that wave particle duality it that is part and parcel mm. of um, quantum physics so when you stop a molecule to look at it or study it you're studying just that particle just that molecule or where it binds to neuroreceptors in the brain yeah but really that particle is also a wave and those waves seem to go into coherence with every other waveform in the universe and so it's almost like looking at that coherence of that energy behind the particle that you can kind of connect with through entheogens it's not in anymore just the the husk 
the clothing around that solid molecule. It's the waveform that's really more free and more spiritual and more energetic and connected with every other thing in the universe. Mm -hmm. And with that, I shall bid you good day. <laughs> good day, Dr. Jillian Stanley.